Hello, my name is Matthew Sortino, and with me is Toby Kent, and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Hey, Matt. Hello, everyone. Firstly, I'd like to start with acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations as the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording today. Um, we'd like to pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. And I think it's, uh, again, we often sort of, a combination of explaining it for people who aren't based in Australia um, and also it's not just about giving in an acknowledgement, but I think this reflection on place, the importance of uh, acknowledging traditional custodians, but also bringing it into all aspects of life is really relevant uh, as we think about our conversation coming up with Gilbert Rochecoust, the founder of Village Well and one of the uh, founding directors of the Emerging Epoch Institute, which we'll talk about in a bit. We've finished that conversation now, Toby, and and the listeners, you know, as a bit of a preview, a bit of a reflection for a preview, I, I was incredibly touched by this conversation and I felt Gilbert has an amazing personal story, but what he's been able to give and gift is the word he often uses, um, is just so powerful. And and I've been reflecting on my own life, Toby. I, just a couple of days ago I was feeling like utter shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't feel like that often, but when I do it, it really gets me down. Friends call me the bipolar bear. Um <laughs> And it's because my moods can go up and down quite dramatically. And I'm up most of the time. But in this particular case, it was just one of those moments where I just reflected and what am I doing? What am I doing? Like I am so privileged and I've got so much want to change things and to help people and to connect and to use my, you know, gifts and talents and passions and, and have a purpose. But what am I doing? Yeah, I'm a decent teacher. Yeah, I've got a lovely family that I, you know, treat really well and, and you know, friends that I see occasionally and, you know, do this podcast mm-hmm. and whatever. But, you know, that's all well and good, but surely I can do more and I've got to keep giving and, and uplifting others and being a powerful agent of change that can and bringing people along with me. And, and I just thought I'm not that. And maybe I'm not that. Maybe I'm not going to be that ever. So let's leave it to the experts and those that are doing it and just maybe just give up and hide away and just, you know, just, I don't know. Do, Bears do, do that. Do basic yeah, things. For like <laughs> over Christmas. But not like, Not you that know, they celebrate oh. Christmas. <laughs> not a holiday. Not a, you know, just a, oh, well, whatever. I'll just die in 30, no, how old am I? In hopefully 50 years, you know. But um, it's not that. And, and, and two conversations we've had recently, but this one with Gilbert, really made me want to go out and be alive and feel alive because that's what's missing in our culture mm-hmm. collectively and I want to be able to bring that to people. And and that's the search that starts today. You know, what, yeah. what can I do? Yeah, what, what Gilbert referred to as hunting for aliveness, which mm. was uh, a great phrase. Uh, and listeners will have to get almost to the end of the conversation to hear uh, that phrase come out, so so do listen on. But um, no, I think you're right. It was it was a really rich conversation, and one of the reasons why there are a few reasons why I wanted to to get Gilbert on, um, and one is because he does have this force of personality that encourages people to just want to be a part of something. But also, and you mentioned uh, a, a couple of conversations, and so there was uh, Gilbert, that we're going to hear from soon. There was uh, 
in Triano di Prato recently. And in both their cases, they also spoke about what they do as in some way or at some moment being informed by a certain level of tragedy and a realization uh, that actually self-care is really important. And I think what you haven't said right now, but I think what I partly took from Gilbert's conversation or our conversation with Gilbert in relation to what you were saying is we can't be too down on ourselves. Um, I'm thrilled that you're feeling more buoyant. But, yeah, if you want to do all those amazing things, you also have to look after yourself. And and we can't give all the time. Gilbert didn't say that explicitly, but in talking about self-care and talking about being reflective, he was talking about taking time to be in nature, taking time to be with oneself in order that you can then also gift and be part of this bigger thing. Um, And I don't think it just means charity alone or giving alone. I think it actually means going beyond, yeah, just helping to finding what special ways you can connect and feel alive while making something better. And I think that's what I want to do. You know, it could be just something simple. I'm sick of the drive to work. So ride to work more often is a simple way to have self-care. You're sick of um, saying you don't see your friends as much as you used to. Well, create something where you're able to do that and give potentially. You don't get to nature it enough. Do something, you know, mm-hmm. that that is self-care with togetherness or connectedness and sometimes others might just need some time alone and that's fine mm-hmm. too. But I, I, I do know that self-care is required and, and my biggest moments of despair were times when I've injured been injured to a point where I'm stuck at home for months mm-hmm. of time in summer mm-hmm. and, or, you know, unable to move or in pain or going through, you know, an anxiety or little depression moment and you learn to write and have that self-care and practice meditation and, you know, journal and, and listen and, 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 and love and, and stop and be still because you have to. And, and sometimes when we're well, in inverted commas, we forget to take stock and, and, and take a break and actually look up to the sky or, you know, mm. and, um, and maybe that's just a reminder to me, as you said, it's not about berating yourself. It's just take a break and have a look. Maybe smell the roses if you can. Yeah, and I think, again, and we, we'll, we'll hand over uh, to the listeners uh, or to Gilbert for the listeners uh, in just a minute, but uh, again, what they will hear, what people listening will hear, is the role of trauma in, in helping to self-realize or to achieve things that you want. And this podcast, you know, we spoke about in episode fifty. You know, is also a reflection of or the creation that came out of you being injured, being reflective, and so with all of this, the, the challenges give often or at their best give give rise to great things. And I think what Gilbert does so eloquently um, in the show coming up is to take that from a really global level down to a very personal level and back again. Yeah, I, that's certainly how I felt about it, but maybe we should give people a chance to see what they think about it. Absolutely. Over to Gilbert Rochecoust.
Gilbert, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Great to be here. Oh, thanks very much for joining us, Gilbert. And there are a few things, and Matt and I touched on this in some in the intro, but just to sort of reinforce it, a few things that really made me think, we've got to get you on. It'll be brilliant to have people hearing from you. When Matt and I actually got introduced and where this all came about was uh, as a result of an interview that Matt had done with a guy called James Mant, who uh, leads the 20-minute neighbourhoods work at Victoria's Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning. And we've had several guests on recently who've been talking a lot about the importance of community. And then one of our recent guests uh, called Darren Pereira was talking about uh, his experience growing up as um, what he referred to as one of the uh, you know, very few Indian heritage children growing up in Dandenong. Uh, and I know you and I have had some conversations around you know, your upbringing in Dandenong and, you know, obviously had an, had an impact on who you are. And so with that, can you just give uh, our listeners a sense of just that, who you are? What, what is it that you do through Village Well, your company, and, and how, how, what led you to be doing what you do? Mm, yeah, great question. I think, um, yeah, you can't take the dandy out of the boy. So, so yeah, the Danong um, is definitely a chapter in my life. And I think the chapter before that was, I, was, um, I suppose, being born in a in a beautiful island, exotic little island in the middle of the Indian Ocean called Mauritius um, with, you know, I think this, Mauritius has got the record for the most holidays in the world. So, you know, if you get we get Christian holidays, Hindu, Muslim, and, and a few other um, religious holidays, and uh, and it's fantastic because we we break bread together. The whole community comes out through food, and 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 ritual and celebration. So I think as a little boy, my first five years there it had an extraordinary impact by living in the village with a village well, and and having that um, intergenerational. Yeah, but I suppose you felt safe and loved, and you sort of knew where you were in your place. And it wasn't car dominated. Everything was walkable. There's a little village in the market, and you could play in the streets. All these little things, I think. And Daniel was a bigger version of that back in the late '60s and '70s. And obviously, you know, 150 different cultures. You know, it's had different waves of cultures. But that really informed my both those experiences living up. You know, in those first 25 years of my life, really informed my sense of view of the world and and I think these things create a sense of uh, how you smell and taste and connect with people right you know so and Danong in particular gave me a, a deep sense of uh, I suppose the sense of what you know what's rights and social justice because there was a lot of vulnerable groups there and I saw some things that most people you know would say it's traumatizing um, living in the areas of social housing and and uh, with a, with a, with a single mother, you know, on on food vouchers and all that sort of stuff. So it's really um, creates that foundation of, you know, sometimes those traumas affect who you are. And I think what what we do in life is like we have a our own rites of passage or what what Joseph Campbell says the hero's journey. Um, we go out and find meaning or healing or connection or some form of um, a narrative or a story that can really capture what it is to be me in this place and as a coloured person or a person from a low income or 
and I was very lucky to slip through the cracks, you know. So it's it's part of that journey of life when you do find these moments or cracks that you you just grab them and somehow intuitively I was at the right place at the right time with the right people um, that, that I took steps into those moments and, and certain doors opened up. So I was very fortunate that that informed my worldview but and informed where I was heading in life. And I didn't really have much of a sense of what I was going to do because no one really told me anything and I didn't have a male in my life. Or So that sort of gives you that first 25 years that sort of sits on what I call the ground of many stories, yeah, and what we do with those. And sometimes we can go in the wrong direction um, and it can take another doorway. But they those were the key elements because once you've had the village, the village doesn't go away. It's almost like... That's, I think that's one of the great wounds of society. We were taken away from the village. And it's it's really the, the deep wound of separation, right, abandonment. You know, it's like we all have that low-level trauma. That's why family's important or where we live or we try to build a circle of friends. But our system is built on separation, mm-hmm. unfortunately, and transaction, not relate, it's not deeply relational. So suddenly we're in this space where I'm going, what the hell is this story that I'm in from Mauritius and a little bit of Danong? And then suddenly this story that says, oh, do you have to be this or do that? Or so I think that sort of um I could rant on, but that sort of starts the, I think, the first chapter of this the journey. And, and just in terms of closing out that first chapter, but some of our listeners are. Uh, overseas and can you just paint a little uh, and again obviously when you were growing up in Dandenong it's both fundamentally the Dandenong that it is today but also have been a bit different can you just paint a bit of a picture for for people as to what Dandenong was like to be growing up in a few decades ago yeah so I think you know big cities always have a an industrial region and in industrial regions you need cheap labor and usually in those regions, it's where the migrants go, the refugees go. <laughs> and when they come in en masse, so I suppose Danon was a very low-income area at the time, but rich in possibilities. And um, I suppose what was great about Danong, it had a market, Danong market, which we I went to every week for maybe 15 years. My mum took me and um, it reminded me a little bit of Mauritius. So at least that string wasn't totally broken. Now, the village market, it was a very different market, but... When you've got a, a, a collection of people who are who have struggled or who want to make a new life, it's a rich palette. You know, there's no there's not a, there's no great sense of entitlement in these environments. It's like you you work hard and there's possibilities and you push you push till you break out of that cycle. Everybody wanted to get out of there. You know, <laughs> that's the thing, isn't it? It's not like this is, oh, you know, here in, in Melbourne, I want to go and live in Dandenong and build this, and you know. But some people do stay in Dandenong for generations. Sometimes it's generational poverty or, or all of those things that they can't get out. But I think it was a great place, you know. That's the thing. They called a spade a spade, and there was a sense of realness in the vulnerability and the rawness. And you see these places all around the world, right? But I think they're great environments for for growth, you know, and I think if you can find the right tribe or the right allies, 
it can create great conditions for your future sort of evolution. And, and obviously Mauritius being a beautiful island off the east coast of Madagascar had also that rich multicultural yeah, community. And I do feel like we, as a global world, especially Australia, just, you know, now 55% of Australians are either born overseas or have a parent overseas. It's the first time in history. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a massive paradigm shift. You know, we're starting to see places and hopefully we'll be designing our communities with maybe an Indian main street or, a, you know, an African main street, you know, instead of this closed off what I call very beige linear, everybody gets the same thing. You know, it's a system, so... Uh, I, I can hear I, Matt sort of itching to ask a question, but let me just, uh, uh, before uh, I give him a chance to, um, you mentioned two things that, that, that may be intertwined, but I'd just like to pick up on. You said, you know, that covers the first 25 years, you know, the five years in Mauritius, growing up in, in Dandenong, and then... I think the phrase was something like, you know, and then you're sort of squeezed out and, and you, as you try to sort of break out and go into the world. And you also said that as you go through that journey in those first 25 years, you find, if you're lucky, the right tribe, the people and so forth. And I'm just wondering, what was it that did allow you to break the cycle? And when you did break the cycle, where did you lead and, and who was with you? That's a great question, and uh, I think if I could say twenty, the first twenty-eight years of my life, that's how I packaged it. It's like your that. story; you can choose. Yeah, you so, can have twenty-eight you know, if you like, want. It's like the you know the like, as Jung says, you know, we have three chapters of our life: those first thirty years, the second thirty years, and then those. Yep, hopefully we move into some eldership in our last thirty that we can be of service. So I think that if I could throw in, I was very fortunate to to get into my first in the family to go to university. And I was always supported because I was, you know, from a single mother household. So I give I give great thanks to the conditions of equity that um, Gough Whitlam created, you know. So um, there's millions of Australians who are in that position and were pulled out from relative, uh, I suppose, not isolation, but and I wouldn't call it poverty either, but lifted out to another level where you have an opportunity to find your gift or a purpose through education so out of that, somehow I fell into a job with Maya Melbourne because I love people, so I knew I was just attracted to people. So Maya was about colour, movement. It was just a village, wasn't it? It's just a department store village. And then somehow, I'm cutting a long story short, I um, I got into this world of shopping centres and I worked for John Gandal and he owned Chadston and Northland and somehow I landed the job of, at the end of that, becoming the general manager of Chadston Shopping Centre, which is um, a very at a very young age. So I somehow, I, through through my own sort of view of the world and energy, they, they saw I had this thing that I wanted to create a liveness and beauty all around. I did that at, at department stores and then I brought that to shopping centres and new concepts and ideas and, you know, it made that consumption palace the most successful one in the Southern Hemisphere. But the crack happened when, you know, I was in a relationship, I broke up, I had a bit of a broken heart and I started, as you do, you start going in, inside yourself. So I, suddenly this became the inside job and through some chance I was with some friends and on a little boat 
And after an electrical thunderstorm and these 25 dolphins appeared, and I was still at, at work at that stage, and, um, and I jumped in and had this extraordinary experience of when the sun came out with these other sentient beings. It sounds a bit way, a bit way out there, but this was a, a big moment of truth and clarity for me where these two hours with, you know, there was a, a mother and a baby and really shifted my ground. I don't know what happened in those two hours, but what I did know that happened, I was a different person after that. That was a quite a cutting shift. And in within, you know, a couple of months, I'd gone into the boardroom and said, oh, I'm about to leave and create my own destiny. So suddenly these allies appeared. I was freaking out, but these allies appeared of people and you know, suddenly the, the CEO of Victoria Market heard that I'd left and said, I want you to, you know, I want you at Queen Victoria Market. And that was a public space, you know, it wasn't a shopping centre, but it was still a gathering space. So suddenly I'm being attracted to gathering spaces and then suddenly someone says, oh, can you fix up High Street Northcote back in the early 90s? And suddenly I'm fixing that and then the, the laneways appeared, you know, fix, helping the graves in Flinders Lane. And so I was very fortunate to bring, I suppose, all of these gifts that I had from department stores and commerce to public realm and community and beautifying these environments to create great experiences for for citizens, for people. So I didn't know what I was doing, to be honest. All I knew I had these ideations and we created the night markets of Melbourne at that time. So it was an extraordinary time. And even we helped save the Abbotsford Convent from development. It took me two years. But these these great legacy projects have now, in some ways, or hopefully in a humble way, informed this great city of ours of public realm and space and experiences. You know, they're, they're sort of quite iconic. But to answer your question, Toby, a lot of these extraordinary human beings appeared. And, um, and one of them was Joanna Macy, who was a, a Buddhist scholar, and uh, a deep ecologist who's 96 years old now. And she gave me a lens and it was about system theory. Yep, that everything is radically interconnected. And deep ecology is about, you know, which I think is even more important to, that we do hold this work now is about the concept of um, despair and empowerment, yeah, that we need to feel what we're doing to the earth in, 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 in the dominant narrative of, of our time is consumption, but behind that dominant narrative is extraction. We live lives of extraction, yeah? What we do need to live lives is to of regeneration. And, 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 and then I, I wrote a little comment, and this is really pertinent after the swim with the dolphins. I don't know how I wrote it, but it came out, out of me and said, my intent and purpose in this lifetime is to open the hearts and minds of humanity to a life-nourishing story. It just came out. And that has driven every moment of my life, which is really interesting. Open the hearts and minds of humanity or people to a, a story that nourishes life. You know, how can we uplift to for people to be good and to do good? <laughs> and we can do this. You know, we've got it all. So I think if it wasn't for the dolphins, <laughs> I could be... Um, yeah, I actually got a job. My next job was actually at Mall of America, the biggest shopping centre in the world. I'd already been there in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and, you know, I was going to do a stint for a year and at 20, 28, 27, and then I was going to go to Europe and build another 10 shop shopping centres. So I was going to be the shopping centre guru. So somehow something clicked and, 
You know, it's like whatever you call it, you know, it wasn't my destiny. Um, I had to, the, the calling was bigger than me. I can still feel that. It's, it's, and somehow it's a bit of a curse, to be honest, because some, it was a curse to build a movement. And I, I think about that all the time. So Village Well that came out of that was really about, and its intent was like, yes, we're gonna, I need livelihood. But from that process, you know, you can act like a business but think like a movement, a movement of building a more just and regenerative world. Gilbert, that's incredible. Um, I'm immediately touched um, by by your story and yeah, I'm uplifted already and we're only at the start. So so thanks, Toby, for introducing us already. I'm, I'm uplifted. And, and the reason for that is because you've spoken about a few things that really mean a lot to me and, and one of those things is the idea of disconnection and, and the fact that we in Australia, we have so much, we have so much, you know, our healthcare, our education, our uh, our quality of life on those, you know, uh, macro scales is impeccable. Yet there's a Impeccable strong. <laughs> well, look, you know, in the top few in the world and, and yet there's a disconnect. There's a, a lack of harmony perhaps within ourselves as well as our, each other. And I, and I notice this quite often, and it seems like our goal as a society, you called, you said consumption palace earlier in, in, in terms of Chadston and, and, you know, that idea of extraction and, and getting the most out of, you know, this, but to what end? And, and this is a question I, I often wonder about, you know, like I grew up in Preston to, to migrant parents, you know, it was industrial, it's now quite, you know, it's, it's getting up there in, in its changes, but, you know, the Preston market was the hub. And that's where I have my greatest memories, you know, growing up and even now walking down and doing the shopping there because it just means so much to me. And they want to take it away for apartments or, or for whatever it might be and destroy it. You know, I get that we need, you know, <laughs> to change our uh, middle ring suburbs to be more, you know, have more capita person. But but you're going to ruin this area if that's gone away. And, and Saving Abbotsford Convent, what a great place that is. That would be, uh, what a legacy. You know, if you stopped everything now and that was your mm-hmm. one thing, that's amazing. So your personal journey as well as your professional one has somehow bypassed, and the dolphins may have been the reason, but somehow, like, you know, you were able to get out of, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, good money, good times, you know, very well sought after, travelling the world, having this success in that extractivist economy. What is it that us as a community maybe, us as a, a society in Australia could possibly do to maybe get out of this rut of extracting individualization? We build higher fences with a camera at the door and, you know, Amazon's the only people allowed on our property to drop off the packages. We drive everywhere. We, we refuse to get out of our car even to do our shopping. How do we get out of that rut and start to enjoy each other's company again, be less fearful and embrace what it is to be human, which is to be connected with a diverse range of people? It's a great question. Look, I think the times are right for for, for that question to be asked. I think in this COVID, post-COVID, whatever you call it, time, there's been a lot of reassessment by a lot of people and I think it's been forced reassessment 
And there's more force reassessment to come. That's the big, I think, tidal wave of inner change and collective change that we'll need to sort of face in the next five to ten years. And I think it creates a great opportunity for people to reset back to... When I think three things happened during COVID. One is that people re- reclaimed the local. You know, we, we saw that. God, they said, oh, God, our parks are important, our creeks, and suddenly it was like, oh, I've never seen that bird before, this and that, suddenly that was important. And, the, our sense, and then the third one is our sense of public space, you know, and, and also that fourth pillar, the, the I think, as Hugh Mackay says, you know, our, our eminent social researcher, Australian social researcher says, our crisis in Australia is a crisis of meaning, yeah? So therein lies, I think, millions of people quietly just having these low-level questioning and crises, and it's bubbling up. It almost reminds me of what happened, you know, over decades during East Berlin, during the Berlin Wall. If you look at the research before that, it was decades of quiet discontent, you know. This is not right. This story is not right. We, we, we want to live. We want to be alive. And then suddenly it blew up. And then it was like this, you know, extraordinary. I'm, I'm using that as an analogy. And I think different societies have different personalities. And I think Australian ones is quite unique because we have the oldest continuous wisdom on the planet. You know, country is a very deep, what I call narrative that we haven't yet connected to. And I'm, you know, I'm still struggling with that. And I think if you put that perspective in, in context, when I worked in Newcastle, there was a researcher in Newcastle who just written a book, but he, he, he termed the, he coined the word, and it's a global word now, and I think that it'll go viral in the next five years. It's called solastalgia. I don't know if you've heard that word, but solace and nostalgia. Basically, it's an underlying discontent and trauma that we're, we're suffering. And it came out of the climate, from climate change, actually. People know Things aren't great. So I think that creates the conditions for what I think the inside job, both individually and collectively, people will start to change from within. And that, you know, as as Joanna Macy says, there's three areas of work that's going to happen on the planet in the next, especially in this next decade. It's One is holding. Let's hold as much of the life support systems that we can. Water, you know, air, topsoil. <laughs> don't frack the place out, you know, all these things. And then the second piece is let's work within systems, all these millions of people working in systems, shifting, like you said, health, finance, government, education, you know, built form. Then the third piece I think is, which I'm really interested in, and I think you folks are working in this area too, is that shifting consciousness, yeah, because we need a new story to shift everything else. So I think we're starting to emerge a new story in Australia where the oldest continuous wisdom meets the youngest multicultural community and people are starting to make small shifts and changes around who they are and what they do or, you know, tree change or seed change or shifting friendships, circles or whatever. But all these are having profound mind quakes and earthquakes for creating the conditions for this next shift. I think we're seeing that with how people are voting for the Teal Independence and the Greens in you know a massive vote in the Senate, and that's only going to I think going to keep going. And I think what it does say underneath, we're yearning for a new story. And I think if people can go out 
This is what I find in my work. I've worked with 2,000, probably 2,500 communities now, small towns and cities around the world. And, and what we see is that three things. One is that bottom-up approaches matter, mm-hmm. and that's what creates real change. I call it power to the people. So create, you know, we, our governments and planning and all that need to get out of the way, let, let the community come forth with the millions of possibilities and I think the second piece is that we were seeing a you know trillion dollar, multi-trillion dollar enlightened commerce wave about to hit us because of climate change and oh, you know the green tech and blah blah blah. So that's going to shift everything, but that's going to trickle down to communities because it's about place at the end of the day for us as a placemaker, someone who dearly and passionately loves empowering people to to make their own places and build their own resilience and make their own mistakes, I think will be one of the platforms that, of new governance models and a whole palette of things. And I know Toby works in this area around resilience and, and building that capacity for positive change. But I think it's the software. We have to get the hearts and minds of people. We've forgotten how important that is. We can do infrastructure, we can do plans, but we have to uplift the human spirit and bring people together with new tools of listening and connection. And I think we're right for that now, more than ever. I didn't. I thought this was going to happen in 10 years' time, to be honest. But COVID came and went, my goodness, it's moving. It's moving at a rapid rate. And you can see, it only takes like, you know, it's the old innovation curve is it only takes 1% or 2% of those key people to really ramp up. It starts to create the domino effect, and we've seen this in many many, you know, social change processes. And, and so I'm excited. I'm excited about that 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 conditions that we've got now and what we need to what and what acupuncture points are going to need it for those dominoes to start falling. And, and I was just gonna say sort of I know you've just said it, Gilbert, but just to ask or be sort of clear, so as somebody who's been pushing on this and combination of deep ecology and, and the creation of places uh, I think Village Well just had its 30th anniversary recently. So for three decades, actively involved in this, you're feeling a palpable difference now. The world feels Australia at a minimum. The world, more hopefully, feels ready for this change, feels fundamentally different to you somehow? I think so. And, look, there will be there'll be many forces at work. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a despair budget and there's a hope budget. So... I'm on the hope budget side. And, look, I do feel my own despair at times and I have to sort of do my own inner work and practices. But I do feel like there's a... And that's why we set up the Epoch Institute, you know, as an outreach to bring in good people to have these courageous conversations for our times. Um, We don't have to do much. Just hold space like you're doing to allowing others to share stories. And maybe those stories will pinprick the, the possibility of transformation within others' hearts and minds and connect good people together. So I think what we're seeing is the next generation in in all those sectors coming up and quite enlightened in their own way and not having the the baggage of the past. It's also a generational shift that we're starting to see happen. And I think we don't have to sell ourselves as hard. They say, yep, let's do it, but how's it going to look? What's the practice? How would this add value on those four pillars of economic, social, cultural, and even the word spiritual. We had one project where 
you know, the focus is always on economic exchange. Then we put in social exchange and cultural exchange. But the client wanted us to focus on spiritual exchange because we've become so transactional in our consumptive world. We needed meaning making, yeah? Mm. And what does that look like, you know, when we do work no. with our Indigenous brothers and sisters? We do build a biophilic environment. We do bring art and beauty into our worlds. And, you know, we just did a project uh, for launch housing and uh, it's called Viv's Place. And I think it's the most beautiful social housing project in the world. A few people have already said that. Oh. It, it's, it's a work of art. But it's healing for people of the most, you know, this is women and children escaping extreme, you know, violence, you know, African women and Somalian women. And and then the other cohort who lived there were women over 50, 55 who have found themselves homeless, the largest growing population in Australia. And it's happening globally, right? So to create a place of beauty and healing and care, um, and these people were crying because it was beautiful furniture and there's, it was designed, you know, with a trauma-informed lens. So suddenly everybody in the community felt proud of this. Usually it's not in my backyard or, you know, don't, I don't want to live near those sort of people. But it's it's that sort of small projects. We need a, a, a thousand more of these buildings. But it's those sort of things, I think, and everyone's doing different work everywhere, but it's those sort of things that's going to create change on the ground. And we're going to need, you know, everyone to be part and parcel of that journey. I want to touch on four words. You mentioned trauma, transformation, despair and hope. And I'm just wondering how we can connect these. So I'm going to... I'm really optimistic after you talked about your hope um, budget there and, and how it's filling up and, and that makes me really positive because I dip into the despair budget too much, I think, um, when it comes to the state of the world. And and I think we're at a point now for transformation to happen and, and there are a lot of people willing and there's a maybe not an equal amount but a, an equal force almost right now that wants to hold on to the world as it is or as it was rather than move towards what is necessary, whether that's with Indigenous rights around the world and, and knowledge, whether it's, you know, to do with the climate, whatever it might be. And trauma often can make people freeze up and or run away and be fearful or fight, um, you know, the fight, flight or freeze. But, you know, there's this, there's this um, sense that a lot of the population are rejecting what's ahead with denial because they're afraid of the grief that is required once you realise where we could be heading for transformation to happen and then obviously solutions from there. So I'm just wondering, you know, you talked about this underlying low-level trauma for everyone. What was it that created that a bit more? Can you, you flesh that out a little bit? And then what might transformation look like and how can we help listeners now that might be either feeling that rejection of wanting to change they might be at the despair point or know people that are you know what message can we provide to to people to maybe help themselves or others move through this really difficult time 
Yeah, great question. We could have hours on this one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think, um, Matt, what I do see is, and where do I start with this? Because it's such a big one. It's not a small question, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Ten words or less. (laughs) Because I suppose, you know, we're so used to wanting, we, we chase for the good life, right? And we want everything to be comfortable and safe. Um, and when that happens and when something shifts, pins that, you go, what the hell, you know, uh, this is not part of the my story. It's not part of the game. I don't want to be involved with those sort of people. I don't want change. So, you know, there's a beautiful Rumi poem, you know, there's, you know, take a bit of it. There's a Rumi, the, you know, the 12th century Middle Eastern poet, Persian poet, you know, there's a field out there beyond right and wrong, I'll meet you there, yeah? There's a field out there beyond right and wrong and I'll meet you there. I think this is where we're going to have to, where I in particular try to play in to find the right language of connection, find the right language of to heal, parking what we don't agree with, but finding those shared stories and shared values. I know that's really critical in this time because unfortunately the trauma is just going to keep increasing, right? Climatic trauma, economic trauma, social trauma, cultural trauma, you know, as we go into our healing processes of our First Nations, a lot of stuff's going to be shared, you know, collectively as a nation, like what happened in South Africa. This is all about to happen. And how much can we can we cope? You know, we want to sort of, you know, most a lot of people just gather as much as they can, protect and escape. <laughs> so what we have to find, I think, in that space is... We're all going to have to be facilitators of some level of healing and positive change and holding these spaces if it's in the built form of finance, all sectors. But I think what's important is that we provide the conditions for that, the word that you use, transformation, and we have to go there with eyes wide open. And I think there's a small group that's growing rapidly in society who get it, yeah, and it's that group is starting to infect others that I'm seeing at the moment. And they know time's running out and, you know, humans are extraordinarily resilient. So I think this processes of collective transformation and birthing what I call the gifting economy, you know, that we become a, a real we could become of deep service of, and this is what I do daily and lots of my friends. So, and there's more people jumping on the bandwagon here to finding their place and how we can transform the dominant story. And, you know, I'm just going to say trauma, having done a little bit of work on this myself, you know, there's, there's those six pillars of trauma that affects everybody. And, you know, and that's fear, shock, shame, abandonment. Yeah. Engulfment you know, um, freeze. So all of these things affect everybody. This is the thing on a low level or even a high level. So we've got to be aware of a new language for change, for bringing people on the journey, and we're going to need these internal skills. So I always say to people, what what can I do? I say, I think it's always an, an inside job, so I'm always working myself and using personal practices to be a better person or a facilitator or have a morning practice, go into nature, um, um, have, as Joseph Campbell says, 
you know, your allies so you can slay the dragons because the dragons are going to come. Um, and in that there'll be, and I think we're going to need, you know, I use the word courage, which is from the French Latin, courage, the rage of the heart, yeah? We're going to need big hearts, courage, to step into these areas that, are, you know, that we can gently walk into, which will emerge the new story. What we have to show the people who are in fear that, Doing this, we're all going to win. We have to show the win-wins really quickly. I'll do that in small towns. We've got, you know, redneck farmers in the room and single mothers or the greenies or the property owners, the builders or, the you know, the old mayor who's been there for 50 years. Like how do you get them to, to find? And I think what I do is always start with place. What do you love about your place? I know it's such a, it's such a breaker, you know. It opens up. They all say the same thing. And then they'll agree to disagree, but we can start with place and how we can improve our, what I call our village and our town and our places and our communities. Unfortunately, Australians move a lot and they're placeless. A lot of Australians are placeless. We're going to have to rethink, you know, in a climate change future around, you know, embedding ourselves and understanding who we are in place. So I think they're just some of the things that I just want to throw in there. It's a bigger, look, it's a much bigger process. And I think for us with EPOC, the reason why we, we've created the Institute and with the positioning line, reimagining people, place and planet is that we truly believe that we do need inner processes and skill sets. Yeah. That to become a good citizen and to become deeply more self-aware of self and and then the toolkits of collective self-awareness. You know, we don't have in Australia and even in the world the tools to actually work better together. And, you know, one of the groups in, in, in EPOC is the um, the Group Work Centre who teaches people the deep group works around trauma-informed. It's interesting because we don't... We used to work together as villages, you know, and you see names of buildings with people there, gifting buildings. We just don't do that anymore because we don't know each other. And then the third piece is that place piece, which I think, you know, that shifting consciousness around what, how do we design our built form to heal and to live good lives and to leave a legacy for future generations. Um, and I think the key word there is, as we move from sustainability to, and we're still struggling with the word, you know, the regenerative world. of, And I think the regenerative self, the regenerative community and um, the regenerative world because I think Mother Nature has always been regenerative in its dynamism, and it's quite brutal, Mother Nature. Things die and then are rebirthed, and how are we to get out of our little comfort zones to find some form of acceptance in this dynamism and to care and leave a legacy for the planet, but also, and the planet will go on, but, but maybe our children and their children and future generations. I often talk about this with with friends and even some students about the internal and the external and how one can't be fixed almost without fixing the other. We need to have a balance of both. And what I'm hearing from you is that we can do anything we want with plans around resilience. We can do anything we want with the places around us. And, yes, that will help foster something, but the something is what matters and that is finding the connection and the humanness and the that growth that to use the word again that transformation of self and it it just seems to me that 
we as a society are focused so much on the external and the the outside and what we're building or creating, which is great, and I, and I know you do amazing work, but what I love about your discussion so far, it's been so obvious that you do focus personally on, and, and within your work on the person and what they feel first and then figure out what we're going to do, not coming in with a plan. I've got the best design in the world and you're going to deal with it small town in Victoria it's the opposite it's what do you need what what can what do you love and how can we foster that so do you have an example maybe of something you're working on you you mentioned Viv's place but something you're working on that you're proud of that sort of encapsulates that idea of internal first and then we'll figure the external out just one of the two and a half thousand (laughs) (laughs) oh look um it's interesting I um I could use so many, so many processes, you know, you could use, I mean, you know, one of my, because I was in a place called Ross House, which birthed 300 community groups um, for 15 years. So that was a real journey and rite of passage. And because we could, because we were there every day, we got to do the, you know, the Flinders Lane degrades renewal because I became like the village king. I was just walking the streets every morning and no one was paying me. That was the thing. So I was just talking to all the traders. What do you reckon we do this? Okay, let's do a little, you know, uh, the first laneway festival back in 93. It was all illegal. I'll call it, I think what we did there was illegal acts of love <laughs> because there was no planning. There was a guy called Rob Adams and he goes, yeah, just do it, you know, and he, and he, and, you know, from the city of Melbourne. and But he knew and others knew that we were just in this experimental space. But it took a community, right? It takes a village. And it took the early stencil artists and I think Banksy was just beginning. We didn't even know who he was. But he was just hanging around on the edges. and But we were all there because we didn't have mobile phones. There was no technology connecting us. But what was connecting us was a city that wanted to become something else. We knew that. And we were just there experimenting through gifting and and and, and creativity because we were having fun. Mm-hmm. Let's remember there was so much fun. And and I think that's that's the piece of the puzzle. Like a like a Flinders, like that the community came together. And it takes many hands to create a place, which is a really important principle that I learned. You know, I could talk about habits of common and even the, the current project, Burnham Beaches, private developer, you know, um, a very wealthy family up in the Dandenongs, you know, 50 hectares of land. And we convince the developer to really engage the community. Developers don't usually, when they purchase something, they develop, right? Why do we need to talk to community? And it was a big ask. And they actually said yes. And we engaged all the individuals in the community in the Dandenongs. And, we, and then we convinced them, Let's create a an open day and get an indigenous young indigenous elder to do a a welcome to country and a smoking ceremony to start the engagement. Two hundred people turned up, so you know it was this was a hot hot. So I'm just giving you a little essence of transformation here. Everyone was like this: play developers, and they burnt, were burnt by the the previous developer. And this is the whole thing: it's us and them, right? So how do you change that? You change it through process, not task. You change it by creating the conditions for care to come through. You create the conditions where story, we start with story, not what do you want to build here? We're going to build this. What's your thoughts? Of course we had to do that later, but what was magical about that day? It was going to, it was going to rain. It was beautiful sunshine in the Dandenongs and near Sherbrooke Road. 
And as the young elder, we, you know, pulled everyone in and it's going, what are we doing here? And then, you know, the young elder came out and, and as she started, two eagles circled around us above and it, it was like silence appeared and everyone knew there was a moment bigger than us because it is bigger than us, right? Something shifted there and then and then she, she said, this has never happened to me. This is very auspicious that two bundles have appeared. And then the owner started getting, I convinced them to come. <laughs> they were in fear a little bit, but in a good way. But they were moved. And they said, wow, this is, never experienced something like this before. But it changed the dynamics. And, it, and then people's hearts and minds were in the level of vulnerability opened up. So that's just one of the recent jobs in the last few months, and then obviously an older one with, with the, the lame ones. But it's the same thing. It's list, deep deep listening, and I think, you know, our Indigenous brothers and sisters have that word called dadiri, which is deep listening. We have to listen to the land and just stop, but also listen to people through ritual, you know. The power of transformation, and I got taught this, you know, is is through ritual making. It doesn't have to be hippie rituals, but it's just holding space. And you see with Aboriginal elders, they're, 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 um, they hold the intention and they hold the field, yeah? And it's the, the holding of the field that creates the transformation. I, I got taught that by Aboriginal elders when I, when I spent a month in the Kimberleys stopping the damming of the Fitzroy River to create the world's biggest cotton farms. Crazy idea, but we won it. We saved the, um, the Fitzroy River in the Kimberleys. And, but we, my gift was hanging out every night with these seven elders who were from, they, they had the lineage of 50,000 years of wisdom. I felt it. To this day, still the most profound spirituality or spiritual experience I've ever experienced because it resonated through speaking through the land. So it taught me as a placemaker, these are the original placemakers, right? So we need, and I'm still a, I'm still a baby in this when I when I'm, I'm sitting in that field. Really, ritual is so, and that's through breaking bread, through meeting, through listening, through sharing stories, through what I call co-creation, and and bringing all peoples to to facilitate that co-creation. I learned that when I swam with the dolphins a year later, I was suddenly we formed a group because there was no dance parties in Melbourne that were non-alcohol, you know, that didn't serve alcohol. It was all big dance raves. So in 92, we created Spiral Connection, that we created the Spiral Dance, 20 of us, and we met every every month we put on a dance party and we met every second week for seven years in a circle to create a beautiful dance party for three, 400 people that had no alcohol, no smoking, no drugs, but had 50 drummers and it was purely about ritual. It brought business people, mothers, children into the space. And we made so much money, we gave it all away. We even paid to get in for seven years. But I just wanted to share that story because sometimes you need your own rite of passage to learn the art of gifting, like true gifting. When you do true gifting, something changes within you and and, and it's never the same forever because we, we're still built on transaction. What's in it for me? How much is this going to make me? So we need to sometimes put our small self to the side and allow our bigger self, collective self. To be honest, that was my best training ground to creating rituals and ceremony and and providing a safe, sacred space for people of Melbourne to dance in, just through pure dance. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. But I know that that's a small thing, but it became a catalyst because hundreds of people were shifted in that space. And it's these sort of things I think are going to be really important in the future. We're going to need new rituals, yeah, for new rites of passages because these times will force us to, and this is why I think you guys and women folk, we're going to need to be birth mothers and fathers for this new story. Mm-hmm. We're, in a, we're in the birthing canal at the moment and it's just like how do we get through it well? Well, pushing. <laughs> <laughs> One of the sort of places that we always end up is asking about what someone's moment of clarity was. And when you were talking earlier, I was like, well, obviously it's the dolphins. It's going to be the dolphins. But as I was listening to you then, there's a, there's so much richness in, in everything you've said and, and you've spoken about gifting. Thank you for being so generous with your thinking and your time. But it was also then when you were talking about creating your own rites of passage. And I'm wondering... Along with the dolphins, along with the elders in the Kimberley and so forth, if you were to, just off the back of this conversation, reflect again on what is your great moment of clarity, how would you articulate that? Yeah, just just in in that moment, I I thought both of those three, two or three moments of clarity, um, my heart was broken. Isn't that interesting? I actually had to go into a dark night of the soul to come back with a little gem as as um Joseph Campbell, you go into the belly of the whale, you know, when when I broke up with thinking this is my first girlfriend, I was so in love and and then that all changed. The dolphins appeared, moment of clarity, you know. And when my divorce came, another moment of clarity, I had to shift myself. I started to elder myself, you know, I didn't understand what that meant to be my own because my father died when I was four. So I had to start to father myself. That was a moment of clarity and getting new skills and a language around that of heal thyself, heal the world. And even COVID was a moment of clarity because Village Well was about to, I was about to lose the company, you know, the, the tap was turned off and, but we had to sort of in going into despair, come out the tunnel again with a moment of, grace really of saying well maybe this is not the way anymore and that's where the you know we did we created the new local vision you know lens for michael schumann we got two thousand people turn up to our webinar and who would have thought suddenly these things and definitely with you know a big one was um with the dolphins because it was so cutting but the other ones were more mercurial and i think each one of those is a rite of passage and I think what I would say to your audience is like it's okay I had to what I had to do is was say to trust and then surrender <laughs> so the two were working in hand and then I just allowed my, myself to give myself some grace uh, and a little bit of grit on the side so I think that allowed what I call and I'm going through this now there's like a transition I'm about to turn 60 and and I said, wow, thirty years, you know, you know, out of the ten competitors of placemakers, five of them are my ex staff. <laughs> so I think that's a gift. I'm happy about that. So I say, well, I've done the job, but what do I do now? You know, so I have to trust in this my own transition, some level of emergence. My teacher Arnie Mindell, 
think he's still alive, 93-year-old, you know, process-orientated psychologist. He says you have to be a bit shamanic in this. You go and have to hunt, go and hunt for the possibilities. And what he's saying, go and hunt for aliveness. I don't think we have a crisis of meaning in Australia. We have a crisis of aliveness. What it is to be alive, yeah? So go go become become like a like a hunter for, you know, the people that listen, smell, taste, you know, and, and also within yourself, listen to those voices. So it is something about grace and self-care and good practices, finding, a, you know, I've got 150 friends, maybe 2,000 colleagues, but I've only got like three people I could keep in that inner circle, you know. It's, it's that sort of thing, isn't it? So all of these things matter. And also being of service. I think if you're, you're, if you're fortunate enough, and dare I say I am in this time, and not that I've made zillions of dollars, but I know the calling is to be of some level of service. And I think that creates great joy and, um, and holding space for the next leaders of this extraordinary time to come forth. So, yeah, those moments were all pretty powerful. So I'm sure there'll be more, you know, because I think when you do hunt for aliveness, it's gonna stuff's gonna happen, and it's gonna make you, it's gonna trigger you, and it's gonna make you grow. That's <laughs> the whole thing, isn't it? If because you're, you're putting yourself out there, stuff's gonna happen. Shit, shit's gonna happen. I know even with my partner, who's a therapist, um, I've learned the art of presencing and repair and reconnect in the moment. When there's a hot trigger, the greatest challenge of life is to repair and reconnect in that moment. That takes deep skills of self-care and learning. But I think they also create the moments of insight because it's in the humility and the healing of, say, I'm going to stay on my side of the fence to, that will break through, I think, in this vastness of um, what I call the big heart that comes out. Um, so... Doesn't feel like I'm in retirement stage yet. This is just the next chapter for these moments of clarity to come through, and I'm 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 putting it out there at the moment because I'm struggling of saying what is this story for for for, for people in cities and places? What is re- the regenerative story? And and I don't and I'm clunking through it, but I just have to allow for that emergence to happen because it's not going to be the the ego is going to be burnt fully almost, even though I need a bit of healthy ego, but it's going to be that collective force that's going to have to come through. You know, we're better together. That's that's what I always think. We're better together and it's going to take a village. Yeah, that's beautiful, Gilbert. Thank you. And um, Certainly we're better for having you on. Thank you very <laughs> much for that. And uh, as you hunt for aliveness and help so many others hunt for aliveness, you've certainly uh, helped bring a lot of life to uh, the show this evening. So thank you very, very much. Yeah, thanks, Gilbert. It's, it's been incredible. So, um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm going to start the hunt. <laughs> That's it. It's, go for it. No, no. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Nice to Gilbert. See you soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Moments of Clarity. 
If you are enjoying the podcast, there are a range of ways you can help us grow and continue to bring our conversations to you. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Moments of Clarity on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the podcast player of your choice. This will ensure you never miss out on an episode. While you are there, you can leave us a review. It really does assist us in getting found by new listeners. However, the biggest way you can help us is to share the podcast with friends, family, colleagues and your social networks. We are hoping to build a community here at Moments of Clarity and want you, loyal listener, to help us build it. We would absolutely love to hear from you and always take the time to reply to your messages. You can get in contact with us on Instagram at Moments of Clarity Podcast, via our website, moc-pod.com, or email hello at moc-pod.com. Thanks again for listening to Moments of Clarity. See you next time.